This is Tech Press Critique. Today is Wednesday, October 24th. I'm Abraham Hyatt, former managing editor at ReadWrite.com, and this is a weekly look at how the online media are covering technology. Today's episode looks at the new secret IPO process and how it's changing the way we cover companies who are about to go public. And now that the new iPad mini is out, it looks like most of the rumors about it were right. So what does it mean for the Apple product launch hype cycle? Last April, Congress made things a lot harder for the journalists who cover IPOs. As part of a bill that makes it easier for startups to raise money, Congress also made serious changes to the law that requires companies to be transparent about how they go public. The new bill is called the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, or Jobs Act. Companies still have to file what's called an S-1 with the Securities and Exchange Commission when they want to go public. Under the old law, the S-1, which lays out a company's financial history, the risks it faces, how it makes money, what it spends money on, is publicly available the minute it's filed. But under the Jobs Act, any company with a revenue below $1 billion, which accounts for about 90% of all IPOs, doesn't have to make those documents public until a few weeks before the company starts selling stocks. What happens in those months when the SEC has the filing, but the public and journalists are in the dark? The only details we have are from when someone decides to leak the information. Well, so there's a good example actually in the news today. That's Chris O'Brien. He's been covering Silicon Valley for the San Jose Mercury News since 1999. There's a company out here in Mountain View called Violin Memory. Frankly, this company I had not heard of. Uh, until about two days ago. I'm betting you haven't. I bet a lot of people listening to this may not have. They're uh, maker flash memory. They focus on data centers. They apparently filed to go public several months ago, and that is in the process of you know being evaluated by the SEC. And it was only because someone got a, some kind of leak that it was reported. So if you're looking at it from the perspective of violin memory, the upside is what happens in that process is often very messy. And by messy, remember Groupon and the accounting issues that were discovered after it filed to go public last year? Not only did it face scrutiny from analysts and journalists, the SEC asked Groupon several times to defend its business model and its accounting practices. Under the new law, we wouldn't have known about those problems or that correspondence or the resulting changes Groupon made to its prospectus for several months. So now, if those questions are being raised about violin memory, then we have no idea. The concern there is that, well, because there isn't that sort of public element to the process, uh, our company is going to be more tempted to kind of push the envelope a little bit and say, well, you ever get dinged by the SEC, it's not like anyone's going to know about it. Whatever we will eventually see will be the results of that process rather than getting to see that process unfold violent memory at some point will publicly release their financials, probably a couple weeks before they actually go public. And we'll just have that period to sort of pour into them, you know, evaluate them, you know, tell readers what we see there. So how many confidential IPO filings have there been since April? We don't know. In late August, the research firm Renaissance Capital estimated that there are now more companies filing confidentially than publicly. That's pretty clear when you look at the numbers. Since April, the amount of public IPO filings have been down between 65 and 70% every month compared to last year. I've yet to really see the strong case where someone says, hey, you know, making a process less transparent is going to lead to more trust and that giving people less information will help them make better decisions. 
we want shareholders to have more information. We want them to have more time to evaluate. We want the press to have more time to scrutinize things, these things again because, you know, the fact is people assume, I think, that because these things are out there, there are so many people looking at them closely, but it ends up being a pretty small universe compared to, say, Google, that every time Google files something with the SEC, within minutes, it's been read by hundreds and hundreds of eyes in the you know, banking investment community and in the press. So if there is something in there alarming, somebody is going to find it fairly quickly. But when you get to these smaller, mid-sized companies, there's just inevitably less scrutiny because there's you know, fewer eyes on them. So uh, I guess this, this really comes down to just basic transparency. Um, you've got the, the, the company and its backers or the backers of the IPO and the conversations they're having with the bankers or maybe analysts or whoever it is in the financial industry. And there's just no way to ever know what's going on with that. So there's a practical level that this bothers me. But there's sort of a larger philosophical thing here, which is, you know, we live in this age of, of the Internet where... I think a certain presumption that going forward, we will be experiencing more transparency. And ultimately, we see transparency as kind of a social positive. If you go back over the last 30 years, I mean, and I'll be particularly harsh on the investment banking part of this equation, there's generally an industry where repeatedly we found that if they're not being heavily scrutinized, they're constantly pushing the boundaries of propriety. And so we, we experience some sort of crisis, and not just in technology, not just with IPOs, but all sorts of different aspects of the public market. And we sort of say, okay, well, let's clamp down and watch them more closely. And then time passes, and we're like, well, okay, let's ease up a little bit. Hopefully, everybody's learned their lesson. But there's not been a, any real evidence, I think, based on behavior that those industries do learn a lesson. I'll mention this company again, Myelin Memory. Do I think that they're likely to commit a big fraud or that there's going to be a big stockholder fraud in this as a result of this? Probably not. But on a larger level, we're opening ourselves up back up to that possibility. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for doing it, Abraham. Yesterday, Apple held one of its mythical Uber events, where company exec superstars carry on in the Steve Jobs tradition of standing in front of a giant keynote presentation and using the same adjectives and adverbs over and over again as they unveil updates and new products. Hey, it's a winning formula. First came a bunch of iMac and MacBook Pro upgrades, and then Phil Schiller, Apple's senior VP of Worldwide Marketing, announced the launch of something we've been hearing about for months. I think we can tell by your excitement you know what this is. <laughs> this is iPad mini. And it's been a little over a year since Apple made half the tech blogging world look like fools. The iPhone 5 we'd all been reporting on 2011 didn't exist. Or rather, it existed, but it's not what Apple revealed at its October event. So when we started hearing rumors about an iPad mini earlier this year, I thought, no way. There's no way. I'm going to get sucked down into this whirlpool of rumors. But the rumors remain surprisingly consistent 
And at yesterday's event, it turned out that nearly every single detail about size, shape, and internals we'd been hearing was right. The one secret that Apple successfully kept is the only one it controls in-house, price. Apple's ever-expanding supply chain has been infiltrated by bloggers and journalists. I called, on a slightly funky connection, John Mitchell, a former colleague of mine who writes for ReadWrite.com, to ask how he thinks this will change how we cover Apple products. Hey, John. Hey. I think we can assume that Apple product launches will no longer have the total veil of secrecy over them like we had in the past. But what do you think that does in terms of how people cover it? Do you think that this is just going to turn the rumor mill up and things are just going to get to this frenzied pace like we saw last year, people guessing this and guessing that? Or because so much more of it, it appears to be actually fact-based, does this take the rumor mill and take it down a notch? One thing we've seen for sure, and this is clearer when you look at all the products that were announced today, not just many, uh, is that the pace is accelerating on these existing products. You know, now that they're sort of filling out all of their uh, sizes and forms and, and functions in their existing products, I think we're seeing iterations that are less surprising. A really boring theme that keeps coming up every time Apple launches a product in the last year or so is that it's disappointing or that it's somehow not, it's not mind-blowing enough uh, because it's exactly what people expected the next update to be. It's a very sensible, clear iteration always. So I think Apple's existing products are getting more predictable and hopefully that will lead to an end of this hype cycle of the new iPhone is going to be a unicorn because people understand that these products have basically been refined to exactly what Apple wants them to be. You know, a year from now, what will have become evident as the best way to cover Apple? If you're not the New York Times, if you're not the Wall Street Journal, if you're a site like ReadWrite, if you're a site like TechCrunch, is covering Apple still all about calling people in Cupertino? Or is it going to be more about looking for things in the supply chain to write about? I guess what I'm asking is if, if we're moving away from the hype cycle, how does that change how we write about Apple? Apple only gives previews to the people that it feels will cover it favorably, and that's something that we've all known for a long time. But there is still a lot you can get out of looking at the financials, for one thing, uh, and comparing that with the needs of Apple as a company and Apple's customers. Over time, you can, you can start to get an intelligent picture I think the future of Apple coverage looks more like a Simco.com than 9to5Mac or you know, a site like that. I think that you can tell a lot about the company because of the things it's buying, the things it's investing in, and certainly what suppliers it's using and what patents it's getting and things like that. You can do analysis that gets you a, an interesting picture of where the company's headed. Somebody like Horace did you at a Simco is able to make really interesting and accurate and specific predictions about Apple based on its investments in retail, the, the amount of money it spends in a quarter. That's, that's his favorite chart is always uh, the capital investment in the quarter before a product is launched. I think that's what it ends up looking like, and a lot of the small blogs don't have the resources or expertise to do that kind of stuff. Are you going to get a mini? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I I will probably want one when I see one, to be honest, but I've got so many devices with small screens. And you know what? I just got an iPhone 5, and the iPhone 5 screen is so amazing for reading, which is the only reason I would really want one of these things, that I don't think I'm going to get it. 
uh, I think I'm pretty happy with the phone. And, you know, I've got an iPad 3, which is, you know, too heavy to hold with one hand. But uh, between those... Such a burden. Yeah, I don't think there's Such a burden. For it. Yeah, really. Seriously. What, what troublesome <laughs> problems and decisions we have to make. And that's this week's show. I'll be out of the country until the middle of November, but I'll be back with a new episode before Thanksgiving. You can find links to previous episodes of this podcast at abrahamhyatt.com. If you have any critiques of your own, leave me a comment. You can also subscribe to and rate the show on iTunes. Bobby McElver composed our music. He's Bobby McElver on Twitter.